you'll turn please to 1 John in chapter 2, or you can just find this text in, the, in your bulletins, 1 John chapter 2. I want to read the first two uh, verses. We've worked our th- way through most of chapter 1, and now we're here in uh, chapter 2 to take up this passage. And as we come to this word, let me ask you please again to bow and let's pray together. Father, now we pray what we have termed in the church a prayer of illumination because we ask that you would do just that. As we began, we invoked your presence and called upon you to be with us and you have been. And uh, we've given you thanks and we've praised you for who you are and all that you've done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we come that you would enable us to hear your word to know that it is breathed out by you through this one we call John. And so we pray that um, he would help us now to really hear, to really see, and to believe. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. First John chapter two, verses one and two. This is the word of the Lord. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, if there's uh, ever a verse or a couple of verses in the scripture and there are many, but if there are ever just two, you should memorize these, uh, because this really is um, uh, the heart of what it means to live in fellowship with God. In fact, theologian J.I. Packer put it like this, he said, these verses, particularly verse two, is the heart of the gospel. In other words, if you know these verses, really know them and believe them and live them, you're knowing, believing, living the very heart of the gospel. Uh, John begins with this little expression, my little children, and he's not being disparaging when he says that. He's he's not um, at all patronizing them. Uh, He's simply sharing his relationship with them. Um, There are many, no doubt, to whom he writes who are new in the faith, and there are many probably to whom he writes who can track and trace their faith in Jesus to the ministry of John. And it's simply an expression of endearment. In fact, by the time he gets to his third epistle, he writes this. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You get that from John. We can see his heart here. But notice what he's doing. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. No doubt what he's already written and certainly what's coming, he's writing so that they, so that we will not sin. In other words, he doesn't want us to take sin at all, at all lightly. So what's he written that will enable us not to sin? Well, he's already told us in chapter one and verse six, if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And so you see, when we're walking with the Lord, walking in the light, walking in the Lord, then we have assurance that we really belong to him. When we're not, we may still belong to him uh, and need forgiveness, but our assurance uh, isn't there. We lose that 
experiential fellowship with him. He's, he's going to go on to say in chapter 2, verse 3, and he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so he's going to write in if indeed as we work our way through this letter we'll see that his desire is that we do not that we do not sin in fact the author of Hebrews puts it like this he says strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord but he's also told us that we will sin I mean that was part of what we found in the middle and to the end of chapter one he says you have sinned and you've sinned. If you say you haven't sinned, you deceive yourself. If you say you haven't sinned, then you make God out to be a liar because he says you have. So what's John aiming at? On the one hand, he says he's writing this so we won't sin. On the other hand, he's telling us that we do sin, and he's also telling us that there's forgiveness for this sin. We're comforted by the expression in verse 9 that if we confess our sins, uh, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's chapter one, verse nine. And we said, yes. But what he wants to say to us is that sin should no longer define us. Sin should no longer be the driving force in our life. Rather, the driving force in our life ought to be to please the Lord. He's forgiven our sins, taken the penalty, but also he's broken the power of it and he wants us to know that. And he says, I write these things, therefore, so that you will not sin. And not only that, what we're going to see today, so watch for this, what we're going to see today is that he's going to tell us about forgiveness of sins. But in telling us about the forgiveness of sins, what we'll learn is how deeply God loves us and when we learn how deeply God loves us, that will be an incentive for us that will empower us not to sin. In fact, the apostle puts it like this, Paul, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. For we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. John has this sense that if you can see it, if you can get it, if we can really understand the love that God has for us, that will encourage us, will help us, strengthen us, actually, not to sin. Now, how do we see how much he loves us? <laughs> By seeing the forgiveness that he has for us um, you can see it he says I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin but then he says but if anyone does sin now that surprised me I, I would expect him to say when you sin not if anyone does sin if anyone it almost sounds like an afterthought it's like well if you do then here's the provision for you but we all know that we do but, but why does John say if anyone does sin rather than when you sin I don't know 
I think this. I think that it's because it fits better with his theme. He doesn't want us to give the impression that sin is to be the norm in our lives. He doesn't want us to fall back into that. I think so often that's the norm of my life. I sin, I get forgiven, I move on in repentance and faith in Jesus. But, but, but he wants us to, to hear this and he, and he doesn't want to get off topic. He doesn't want to get off theme. He wants to say, so if you do, not when you do, but if, if you do. And we know that there are seasons, the scripture says, of sin in our lives, even seasons when sin seems pleasurable, when it seems good, when it seems like it's meeting our needs, when it's satisfying. But there's always in our lives a day of reckoning because sin will always let us down. Sin will always ultimately hurt and disappoint. We don't always believe that as we begin in it because sometimes it feels so good to be angry. Sometimes it feels so good to slander. Sometimes it feels so good to gossip. Sometimes it feels good to hate. We know that, to be selfish, to be prideful, but, but it always gets us, it always does. So John doesn't want us to think that sin is the driving force of our life. No, the driving force of our life is by the grace of the Holy Spirit to obey, drive, driving force of our life, to live by the Holy Spirit, to please the Lord. That is real life. That is real life. And so notice how he puts it. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He says, so here's what you need to know. This will help you. This will actually help you not to sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, that little word advocate, you know what it means. It means to, to speak on someone else's behalf, to, to plea for someone else, to stand for them, to help them, to strengthen them. We can think of a court of law, and we can think of an attorney who's an advocate for his client, or we can think of, of someone who's a caregiver who might be a, an advocate for the person they're caring for. So we understand that. We represent someone else. Now, this little word advocate, you may know in Greek, it's a little word called parakletos, we talk about the paraclete, the helper. When Jesus uses this term in, 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 in his, his, his life, when he's in the upper room with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, you can find this in John 14, 15, and 16, he uses this word of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is to be Jesus' advocate. The Holy Spirit comes and pleads Jesus' case to us. And he glorifies Jesus and he teaches us all things about Christ. Now this word from John is being used of Jesus. And Jesus is our advocate in heaven. The Holy Spirit is the advocate of Jesus to us. And Jesus is our advocate in heaven to the Father. He pleads our case uh, to the Father. Now we, we need to realize that when Jesus is pleading his case, pleading our case to the Father. He's not pleading our case to an unwilling judge. Now God is the judge, but he says we have an advocate with the Father. Now the judge is our Father. And he's not unwilling to hear this. In fact, he sent Jesus so that Jesus could do his work and return to be our advocate. The Father delights that the Son 
is advocating on our behalf. He's not unwilling to hear the son's pleas to bring us forgiveness. Uh, He sent him. We know this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Uh, We know this verse, Galatians chapter four, verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So, so, So God, the father, sent forth his son so that we might be received by him. The father isn't unwilling to hear the son's plea. He desires to hear the son's pleas. And there was a heresy a number of years ago that suggested that the father sending the son was something they called cosmic child abuse, which is that the son was sent to um, give himself, to take all this punishment, punishment for sins he hadn't committed. And that was cosmic child abuse. But it's not like that at all. Because the son is completely willing in love to his father and in love to us to come and, and, and give himself. You remember what he said? He said, no one takes my life. I give it. So please see this, if you will, as a community of joy between the father and son. A community of delight. The father delights that his son is our advocate and the son delights to be our advocate and to plead our case. In fact, he lives to intercede. You know this passage from Hebrews in chapter seven. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is always living. He's always pleading our case. It'll never stop as long as he lives, and he always lives. That's the great news. You remember, in the old covenant, the priest would represent the people. But how does the author of Hebrews put it? He says, but they keep dying. And you never know who the next one's going to be. Is it going to be a good one? Is it going to be a bad one? Is it going to do a good job, doing a bad job? And, 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 and now, so he makes this emphasis that he always lives. He always lives. He never stops. And he always, so we never, there's no break in this. There's no variation in quality. It's always this one Jesus who makes this case for us. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous Jesus. When we hear Jesus, we think very often of Jesus and his humanity. Jesus, this very one who is made, made like us. And so he gets it. He really understands. Again, the author of Hebrews puts it like this. He says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's he's like us. In every respect, he was tempted like us. Now, he didn't sin. And that's the good news, of course. It's good news on a number of fronts. One is that it means that he experienced temptation much more intensely and much more deeply and much more completely than you and I. Because you see, often, at least in my life, I succumb to the temptation within the first 10 minutes. 
Jesus hung on until the tempter was frustrated and left. He knows temptation. And so when we go to him and we say we've sinned, please forgive, he understands. He understands our weakness. He can sympathize with us in every respect. He's the anointed one, anointed by God. That is, God has said, has chosen him. He said, this is you, my son. You will go and you will give yourself for my people and you will plead their case. Therefore, I'm the one who sent you. I'm the one who called you. I'm the one who anointed you for this purpose. And I'm the one who will receive you into my presence. I'll believe, I'll take, I'll listen to, I'll respond to everything that you say. Because I'm the one who sent you, I have anointed you. And he's the righteous one. He's the righteous one, which means he can stand in the presence of God. He's righteous. I can't stand in the presence of God unaided. Why? Because I'm unrighteous. You can't stand in the presence of God. Why? Because you're unrighteous. But we can stand in him and he can represent us and he can plead our case and God won't, the Father won't kick him out. Why? Because he's righteous and he's there. And he's righteous too, which means that he's completely trustworthy. The Father will trust everything that he says. The Father will trust everything that he's done. The Father will trust him completely. We can trust him completely. I don't know if you've any, ever had anyone represent you, whether it's in a court of law, whether it's in business or in family situations or whatever, and they go on your behalf and you sit there and don't you wonder sometimes, are they going to do a good job? <laughs> are they going to really say it rightly? <laughs> or are they going to do it completely? At the end of the day, when I wish I had been there, we can trust him completely. I don't want to be there. I want him there. He's the righteous one. He will do it. He'll do it perfectly. And there he is. And the blood that he has shed, the blood isn't for him because he was perfect. He didn't need anyone to die for him. He didn't need to make atonement for his own sins because he had none. The blood that he shed was for us. The sins of his people. And that's what he pleads with. This blood covers them. This blood is for them. I shed this blood for them. So we can trust him, you see. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher of some note and great significance in my life, the last century put it like this. He says, the Lord Jesus does not merely ask God to overlook our sin or to forget it. He stands there. And if I may use language with reverence in discussing such a high and holy matter, he is there, as it were, to say to God, it is but right and just that you should forgive the sins of these people, for I've borne their sins and the punishment of their sins. The advocate turns to the father and says, I must ask you to put your law to the side. I'm here to remind you that the law has been fulfilled, that the death has been died, the punishment has been enacted. They're free because I died for them. It is he who enables God to be just and the justifier of the ungodly. Can you imagine greater comfort and consolation than that as a result of Jesus Christ and his standing in the presence of God on my behalf? I say this, I say it with trembling. And yet I say it with confidence. 
God would be unjust if he did not forgive my sin. Christ has died for me. It's the righteous and just for God to forgive the sins of all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ the righteous. That's perfect advocacy. Now the next line is this. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours but the sins of the whole world. But let's sing before we take that up. Please stand. Through the valley I must travel 
For His love is my reward Fear is gone and hope is sure Christ is mine forevermore Come rejoice now, O my soul For His love is my reward Fear is gone and hope is sure Christ is mine forevermore And my dark kings to Zion City Where beside the King I walk For there my heart has found its treasure Christ is mine forevermore Christ is mine forevermore Christ is mine forevermore You may be seated He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. You see, this is the the basis of the advocacy of Jesus, this propitiation. It's one of the great words in the the Bible. Uh, Not every translation translates this particular Greek word as propitiation. Some translate it as a sacrifice of atonement, if you have a new international version. And that's fine, but really, I like propitiation, and I want you to like it too. Um, in fact, when, when our son was little, well, even through high school, and some college and other kids in the neighborhood, rather than playing horse on our driveway, we played propitiation. Um, they liked it because it, the game lasted longer. I liked it because I got to talk about propitiation while we played, but... Um, it's, it's, it's a great word. It's the, the, the deep foundation, really, for this advocacy of Jesus. Uh, the dictionary tells us that propitiation means to appease, placate, or conciliate. And I always hate definitions that give me words that I have to look up. Um, but to appease means to pacify by acceding to someone's demands. In other words, uh, we try to make them happy by get, giving them what they need or what they want in order to restore the relationship or to placate means to make someone less angry or hostile they have something against you and so you want to do something give them something so that they won't be angry at you anymore won't have this hostility towards you to conciliate is similar it's to say or to do something uh, to stop them from being so angry or or discontented with you and that all works in a real way the difficulty with the word propitiation is its history. It was used often in pagan religions. Um, if you needed something from the gods or if you had um, um, dissatisfied them in a particular way, uh, then you had to sacrifice something in order to appease them, if you will, to pacify them, to get them back on your side. So you may have to give them crops or sacrifice animals or, or even your children or your spouse. In fact, one uh, professor of theology of mine and Dave's, uh, Roger Nicole, puts it like this. 
He says this term was used in pagan worship in reference to what might be called a process of celestial bribery. The ancients thought, the gods are irritated against me, so I have to make sure that I give them something that pleases them and will avert their wrath. They were making payments, as it were, bribes, in order to secure the gods' favor. That isn't how it's used at all in the Bible. Now, it isn't that God isn't displeased with us. In fact, there's a word in the scripture that when I read it, often makes me shudder. It's the word wrath. You read through the scripture, the Old Testament scriptures, there's some 20 different words translated as wrath. It's used almost 600 times. In the New Testament, it's no different. It's used, the word for wrath is used more than 100 times. We hear it from the lips of Jesus. For instance, in John chapter 3, verse 36, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. And how many times did Jesus speak of hell? The Apostle Paul in Romans in chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In chapter 5, he says, Since there, therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we, shall we be saved from him, from the wrath of God. You see, Jesus came to save us from the wrath of God. He writes to the church in Ephesus. He speaks, he says, We are among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the, like the rest of mankind. He says, this is true of all of us. We're all under the wrath of God. Something must be done if we're to be reconciled to God. This wrath has to be, has to be dealt with. We read in the Revelation of John in a number of places. I'll just read one from chapter 16. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of wine in, of the fury of his wrath. So it really is, is true, this wrath of God. Now the wrath of God, true and living God, is not like the wrath of pagan gods. Their wrath is capricious, arbitrary, bad-tempered, conceited, uh, flows from their own conceit. And it's not even like ours, human beings, the wrath of human beings. Our wrath is often sinful or resentful or malicious, um, infantile. Now, you see, God's wrath is the righteous response, the measured response, the appropriate response to our sin. Because, you see, God is holy and righteous, and, and we sin against him, and, and he, he, he tells us how we're to live. He gives us his law. We rebel against it. And when we rebel against his law, we're rebelling against his love. When we're rebelling against his law, we're rebelling against the wisdom of the one who made us. We're, we're rebelling against his very character. He's saying, this is what you're to be like. You, you were made to glorify me, to reflect me. And, and so in love, I'm telling you this. I'm revealing this to you so, so you'll live it out. And when we say no, we're saying, no, I'm going to follow my own way, not yours. I'm putting myself in your place. And that's a great injustice against this very one who loves us, these violations, a deep injustice. We deny his word. 
Oftentimes when we speak of the wrath of God, we think it's a bit over the top. We think, well, I'm not that bad. But then we look at our unbelieving friends and we say, well, they're not that bad. And family members and celebrities that we admire, we think, well, they're not that bad. Look at all the good that they do. How can they be under this wrath of God? Well, it's because it's difficult for us to imagine the purity, the holiness of God. If I painted a painting and you spilled coffee on it, it wouldn't be that big a deal. Normally when I paint, it's a wall. One color. We can clean it up. It's not that valuable. Not that big a deal. But if you spilled a drop on a Rembrandt, that would be a big deal. Now why would that be a big deal compared to my painting? <laughs> because a Rembrandt is really valuable. See, just a smidgen, if ever we could just do a smidgen, of sin against God. It's huge. Because God is holy. And you might say, well, I can forgive people. I forgive people all the time, and I don't have to have anybody die. I don't have to really get anything in return. There doesn't have to be anything paid to me. I can just forgive them. And you know why that's the case? Because we're equal opportunity offenders. When I forgive you for something you've done against me, it's likely I've done the very same thing against somebody else. It'd be the height of hypocrisy for me not to forgive you, to hold that against you, when I do the very same things against the likes of you. God has never offended anyone. God has never done anything wrong. There's never been an offense. He's never violated who he is in his holiness and purity. And so he can have righteous wrath where you and I really can't. And that's the nature of propitiation, you think. But, but another difference between the propitiation that we read in the Bible and the propitiation in paganism is that God is the one who makes propitiation to himself. He initiates it. He does it. We don't. We do nothing. We don't do anything to try to appease him. We don't do anything to try to pacify him. We don't do anything to try to pay for it. Well, we can't. Uh, he does it all through his son. Again, if I could quote my theology professor, Roger Nicole. He says, propitiation is the gracious act of God by which he himself, let me say that again, propitiation is the gracious act of God by which he himself has made the provision that is necessary for the outpouring of his blessing by which he himself has taken care that all the demands of the law and of justice be met so that sinners might be received in grace. God does it all. We're not trying to do something to pacify him, to bribe him. He does it. Tim Keller, Presbyterian minister, New York City, puts it like this. Propitiation, turning away God's wrath. God's wrath is turned away from us, those who deserve it, by the provision of the one who takes it in our place, God himself, Jesus. The cross is the place where the judge takes the judgment. John Stott, 
Propitiation is an appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. It's the appeasement of the wrath of God. It satisfies the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. He does it. Now, what are the implications for us of this? Well, first this. That when we come to God, we come to God. That is, God doesn't sacrifice anything about himself in the sense that he doesn't compromise anything about himself in reconciling himself to us. That is, his love remains his love. His justice remains his justice. And in the utter wisdom of God, he's able to satisfy both his justice and his love and still receive us. He satisfies his justice in that the price has been paid. He satisfies his love because it's not paid by us. It's paid by his son. It's paid by himself. Thus he is just and the justifier of all those who believe in Jesus. If we only knew his justice, we would only know his wrath. If we only knew his love, we'd wonder, what about all these sins? We don't need to wonder at all because we see his justice and his love in our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, we never ever have to worry about anything coming up that will change this because it's already been taken care of. It's already been paid. We can put it like this. There is no case against believers any longer in heaven. No case at all. In fact, if any accusation is made by the evil one, by anybody else, it, it, it's intercepted by Jesus. And he looks at it and he says, no, we got that. We got that. It's done. Paid. No, sorry. And that can never, never change. We never have to worry that somehow something will happen that Jesus will stop advocating for us because his advocating for us is based on what has already been completed, what has already been done. And our sins are forgiven. They've been thrown as far as the east is from the west. They've been buried in the deepest sea. And God says, I will remember them no more. And this too, we never have to worry about receiving his wrath It's been satisfied. So when difficulties come, you might think, this is God's wrath against me. If you're a believer in Jesus, it isn't. It's God's fatherly care for you. Discipline to conform you to his image. Even as we're going through all the stuff we're going through in these days, it might be his wrath The bowls of wrath, as Revelation talks about, being poured out and no one repents. But to believers who've already repented, to believers for whom he is their father, all of this is coming and he uses it in our lives for good to conform us to the image of his son. And we can see it right here. To remember... And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he went to the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. 
And he said, oh, if this cup could pass from me. What cup? The cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath he was referring to. And and Jesus was responding as a human being. He was responding as a man uh, uh, like any reasonable man should, realizing that he's about to face the wrath of God. Anybody who dies apart from Christ faces the wrath of God, and you should be scared. And we all should be asking, can this cup pass from us? And, And the answer to Jesus was, no, it can't. The answer to us is, yes, it can. And it can for us because it didn't for Jesus. He drank it till it was empty. He was smitten. He was crushed. He was punished for our iniquities. He took it all. The wrath of God. As our dear friend, Jerry Bridges puts it, Jesus exhausted the wrath of God. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. In the same way, he took the cup and again after giving thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. We declare he's made propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but this extends to the whole world, to anyone who will believe. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that you'd set apart the bread and the juice that we have in our hands. You'd set it apart in such a way that we'd know that we're in the very presence of Jesus. You'd set it apart in such a way that we would, oh, we would have great assurance that what is represented here in these elements represents for us, reminds us, brings to our attention, brings to our hearts this one who is our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, because he's made propitiation for our sins. Please grant grace to us that we can have deep assurance that we're reconciled to you. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll take your little communion packets and find at the very top this wafer. If you'll be reminded that Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. And let's eat together. you'll take the cup and be reminded that Jesus said this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins 
Let's drink together. Let's pray, Father, we're so grateful that you sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you've taken our sin upon yourself, that the wrath of God would be exhausted, would be satisfied. Please, Enable us to see and to know this deep, deep love that motivated all of this so that we'd be so assured of your love through the forgiveness of sins that it would be our heart's desire to please you, to live no longer for ourselves, as the apostle says, but for this one who has given himself for us. Holy Spirit, please help us, give us strength, Give us wisdom. Enable us to walk as Jesus walked. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Let's stand and sing.
Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. together let us pray the prayer that our Lord Jesus gave to us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I remind you that we have elders here this morning who are available to pray with you, and they will meet you in the narthex area out to the left as you're leaving in that larger area to the left. So if you have particular things you need to pray about with them, please do that. They've been ordained by God to pray for you. So please um, and, uh, go to them and uh, pray with them. And to please receive this as God's benediction. And it can be God's benediction because Jesus lives to intercede for us. He is our propitiation. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.